Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hi, everyone. It's Kevin Dong here, and thanks for joining us at Mac Emerge Podcast. This is the February 1st, 2022 special, and we have three awesome guests for you to listen to. First, we have Dr. Aleem Pardan, our fearless leader of our residency program, as well as our Hamilton General Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences exceptional leader, who is going to do a special regarding sharing some of his favorite shows and how it relates to some pearls regarding medicine and emergency medicine. And then we have Dr. Rafi Satrak, who is going to talk about his leadership experiences in the pandemic and how it relates to some of his previous experiences in the past when it deals with conflict and and pretty much disasters. And lastly, our resident special has Dr. Frank Bertaglia, who is going to speak to us about leadership as a resident. So we have an awesome February episode for all of you today. I hope you enjoy it. Hope you guys are staying safe and warm. Here's our episode. Enjoy. Welcome to a new segment, which we're going to call Everything I Learned, I Learned from the TV. I'm here with Aleem Pardon, and we're going to be discussing some of the pop culture references that have spurred into insights in health care and health education. So Aleem, can you tell us about what you've learned from the TV? So I think the first thing I would say is from a popular culture is Harry, from Harry Potter. So what I did not realize is there's already a few papers about this already. So people have actually studied what are some good and bad things that you can learn from Harry Potter in healthcare education. So first thing I think that is the most important is help will always be given. And I've certainly put this on Twitter a couple of times and certainly on Facebook that in the emergency department and hopefully within our program, help will always be given to those who ask for it. This is one of the key tenants at Hogwarts that help is always available. I think that that's really important both in the clinical realm as well as in healthcare education that there's always going to be someone to help you if you need it. The other thing I think I found was one of the key tenants in Harry Potter is that people need to learn by doing. Harry Potter is a highly accomplished wizard, certainly more accomplished than many of his peers. And it wasn't just because of book learning. It was because he had to do a lot of things. I think the same can be said for both Hermione and Ron as well. And exams do not show everything, as can be evidenced by Fred and George, who despite not getting that many OWLs, which for those who don't remember are ordinary wizarding levels, I think they got seven between the two of them. They were still highly successful as entrepreneurs and as wizards doing some very interesting and very creative magic that was very successful despite not being that great on exams. Also, I think there were some really good teachers in Harry Potter. So think Lupin, McGonagall, Hagrid, Professor Sprout, all of whom had a, a few key 
things that tied them together. So they very much focused on learning by doing. So there was a lot of hands-on. There was some theory, but definitely a lot of hands-on of people doing things, doing things for real. There was a big importance on keeping people safe. So when Professor Sprout had people doing something, she would always say, this plant will knock you out if you don't wear your earmuffs right. However, they still let the students experiment and try things differently. And finally, they all had structure in their lessons. So there was definitely structure, but they were able and willing to bend the rules if they needed to. These are just three tips that I took from Harry Potter that I think were really important in medical education. Looking like a true seasoned program director who has some insight. Thank you very much for sharing with us. All right, so here we are again with Aline with another segment. Aline, what are you gonna tell us about today? So today is gonna be three, well, four lessons from Star Trek. Mostly the next generation, because that is a far superior show, but one from the original series. So number one, leaders should listen to their team, then making the, make decisions using that input. So Picard was particularly good at this. Listening to the information, mostly from data, and no, Sean, not the data points on a chart, the Android commander data, soliciting discussion and options from the team, and then making a decision. This is particularly important in any leadership capacity is listening to your team, getting everyone's input before you make a final decision. Number two is using people to their maximum potential. Using an Android as an operations officer, an empath as your ship's counselor, and a Klingon as a security officer. Again, super important role of leadership is knowing people's strengths and then leveraging them. Also important to then get them trained in other areas so that they can also grow. One of the biggest functions of leaders is to train new leaders, not just perpetuate the current system. Finally, planning is important. Although no plan ever survives the intact, the exercise of planning means that your team is better able to adapt when Murphy makes an appearance and everything falls off the rails. Sometimes your captain gets kidnapped by the Borg and sometimes one of your key leaders gets sick or can't work. What is your if I get hit by a bus plan? Who can pick up the reins and take over from you? Even if it's several people, someone should know how to do all of the different parts of your job so that they can take over if something happens to you. Every captain needs a number one, right? You got it. And one from Star Trek, the original, sometimes in leadership, and often in emergency medicine, you have to make decisions based on incomplete information. In fact, it's what Emerge does incredibly well and every day. That's okay. Make the best decision you can with what you have, with what information you have available and just be ready to modify your plan when more information is available. Just like Kirk and Spock. Well, mostly Kirk. Okay, well, thank you very much, Aleem. We'll take those under advisement and engage. The next TV show I wanted to talk about is The West Wing. Teresa, everybody knows what The West Wing is, right? I'm not sure. There are some people, you know, the millennials, quote unquote, that might not have tuned in. They might have been a little young at the time, the later millennials. So maybe you give us a summary? Seriously? They don't know what The West Wing is? Okay. Well, I know it's a place in the White House. Yes. Yeah. So The West Wing is a TV show, circa early 2000s, which is a TV show about The West Wing and how it runs on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's about the president and his advisors and the staff who work in the West Wing every day and how they run the country. And it's a great TV show. It is one I highly recommend to anyone who is interested in that, that type of work. Yeah, it's available on Netflix in the US, but you can also get it on Apple TV and you can definitely borrow the DVDs from Aleem probably if you just asked. <laughs> 100%, I have them all. So the three big lessons I think from the West Wing are number one, you have to trust your people. So Bartlett, who's the president on the TV show, The West Wing, can't do everything. So he trusts his people to plan and once approved, carry out the plan. There is lots of negativity towards administrators. And what I will tell you is that I work every day with managers, directors, and administrators across the hospital and my educational roles, and they all work really hard and are truly trying to make things better. But unfortunately, it's not as easy as it sounds. Give a couple examples of trusting your people. I will tell you that Dr. Kelly Van Diepen, who's our assistant program director for the FR Emerge program, runs the curriculum. 
I don't touch it. I trust her to manage that independently. Dr. Kyla Kaners is our SIM expert and guru. She runs our SIM program. And Dr. Teresa Chan, who's sitting across from me, runs our competence committee. We've also had lots of residents who have done a huge amount of work in terms of revamping our curriculum. And it's very much been a, tell me what you're thinking about doing and then go do it and we'll provide support and input as needed. Lesson number two is decisions are made by those who show up. I will be the first to admit that some meetings are pure theater, where the decision is already made before you get there. Mm -hmm. But for most meetings, it's good to show up, be prepared, and provide meaningful, constructive input. And that's a really good point, because I think a lot of the time, people assume that every, every meeting is going to be theater, and then just start tuning out and not showing up. But there are some meetings that are probably more important than others, and, and those will be ones where votes are going to be done if you're in a group of people who are voting on something. I think working group meetings tend to be good because people are riffing on ideas and trying to discover something. So there are certain kind of like symbolic naming of meetings that will probably hint at town halls, right? Yeah, town hall is a big a one. Way. So yeah. town hall, mm -hmm. work group, any meeting where it says input is required or where a lot of documents are sent out in advance with the please read these before you come is, is where we're looking for input. Also, it's really important to remember that when people are asking for volunteers, particularly where it is for a working group or a town hall or a small group to take something away and bring it back, that's a good time to put up your hand because that's when we are going to be developing something and then bringing it back to, to a larger group for, for approval. The last important lesson I think is, is that executing strategy takes time and planning. Residency program or a hospital department are big, complex machines. They do not turn on a dime and there's lots of unintended consequences when you make changes. So if you change one thing, you have to think ahead about the number of things that it is going to change down the road, not just for you, but also for all of the people you work with and all the people you interact with. And so it's really important to sort of plan things through and try to game out as many of those unintended consequences as you can. It's also important that because these things take time and planning, sometimes you just have to stand there and let things sort of play out and run their course and see how things go. What I will tell you is as Emerge Docs, we are particularly bad at this. Yeah. We are not big fans of just standing there. We have this incessant need to jump in and fix things. And, and I will be the first to admit, I am one of them. Yeah. It's hard, right? Like we always say to the residents, don't just do something, stand there. Because sometimes just watching and seeing how things and something will play out will be actually as important as actually doing something. Because yeah. in doing something, you might cause more harm than good. Yeah, and tincture of time and frequent reassessment are actually things. And they are things that are important both clinically as well as administratively. So as, as with all peoples in positions of leadership, I rely heavily on my admins, the Leo McGarry's and Josh Lyman's of the world. So I think this is an important time for us to give a shout out to all of the admins that work in the emergency medicine program. So certainly within the Royal College and CCFPEM programs, Teresa Valera, Julia Smirali, Melissa Heimers, Jenny Mead, Lillian, whose last name I can't pronounce, and Jen Lorenko, who keep my life straight and keep the EM program and the hospital department running. So thank you all for all the work that you do and thank you. You're quite right. The idea that the president's chief of staff is like quintessential uh, to the running of a, a country, just as our administrators that do the behind the scenes organization and execution of a lot of the work. We're really nicely supported in the way that we do our work. So thank you to all of the administrators out there that make our lives a little bit easier all the time. Awesome. Thank you. All right, hello everyone. I'm here with Rafi Setrak. I don't think Dr. Setrak needs any introduction. He's been on the podcast before. He's kind of famous. He's also been recently on the Math PFD Spark podcast, and he is a world citizen who has decided to spend his last couple of years here 
in Niagara as the chief of, really the regional chief of emergency care in basically the Niagara region. So Rafi, will you say hello to everyone? Thank you very much for having me and hello everyone. It's nice to be here. So Rafi, you've done all sorts of different kinds of healthcare and really leadership in so many different ways and been involved all over the world. And how does this global pandemic that you've survived so far as a leader, how has it been the same or different to some of the other leadership experiences you've had previously? I have to tell you that I had to go back really, really to times of war to have comparators to what's happening now. The amount of stress, the amount of resources and resilience that you have to reach and pull out and use to keep going. I have to confess, it has been decades since I found myself in similar situations. So I do have comparators, but I also understand that most people don't. Definitely. I was going to say because of your more worldly experiences, because you have actually been in the middle of armed conflict, you probably have more of a database, I guess, in your head of experiences that are more comparable. But for most of us, I mean, SARS, some people, if they were in Toronto, I think was a blip compared to what we've been enduring for the last couple of years. And so in that reflection, in thinking about how this is similar to some of those really difficult times in your life previously, what are some things that you've called upon to bring to the the forefront of what you've brought to your group clinically and, and as a leader? I think there are two buckets. I think the first was personal resilience. And for that, I, again, relied on my family and the people I love. The circle became smaller during the pandemic, but again, the emotional resilience, the ability to come back home or get out of the room of my office and sort of just relax and just feel pure love and support and warmth that is unconditional has has probably been one of the things that kept me going through all this time, especially that my other tricks for resilience, like taking regular time off, like, you know, exercising, like visiting and going out, like all of them disappeared suddenly. So on personal level, it came down to the basics, which is the little circle around you that loves you and that keeps you sane and keeps you going. For work, it was probably different. Things sort of were not linear. They went up and down. I have found several challenges that required sort of reflection. I had never felt, you've probably heard the saying, you know, it's lonely at the top. And not that I'm at the top, but I had never felt it like during the pandemic, especially the beginning, when we had to do a lot of the work, the grueling work in the background, not being able to share what we're doing so people won't panic. I'll give you an example. Our first EOC, our command table at the hospital, started meeting in mid-January. It wasn't until March 2020 that our docs and nurses and people really felt the pandemic at our doorstep when we canceled travel during March break and everybody went sort of into a panic. And we had been working for two months on this prior, uh, going through PPE supply chains, going through policies and procedures, going through all kinds of things that we need to do to keep the system running. And yet we had to hold these things close and not disclose them because you can't say things too early and yet you can't say them too late. There's a time for doing that. That was probably one of the most difficult things at the beginning of the pandemic on a leadership level. The other challenge I think was 
managing people's emotions. They varied. They varied from, you know, withdrawal, depression to pure anger at certain stages from different people as everyone was trying to grapple with what this new reality is. And it was very hard. I had never been at this level of leadership before during a crisis of this size. And I had to learn to deal with all those kinds of challenges. Probably I have not yet had time to reflect a lot about the past two years because basically we've been going full throttle now for two years. This is, we're chatting now at the end of January, 2022. We started this work in January, 2020, and I've had no break. My phone hasn't been turned off for a day. It's just been continuous working with very little periods of respite in between. So I think in the next year, two or three, I'll have more reflections about how things went and how these are going to affect me. That's sort of the stressful side. I can't forget the positive side. Hard times, as they bring the worst in people, they bring the best in people. I have developed new relationships and new friendships and new connections and new respect to people I had worked with for maybe some time, but never had to interact with so closely. I've had close friends who've actually our relationships fell apart as the pressure mounted and different aspects of, you know, personalities and abilities to manage stress came out. And I'd like to think and hope that this is transient. And as we normalize again, these will build again. But I surely had the good fortune of working with some wonderful people, some of whom I had not interacted with before, some of whom I've known for a long time, as we rallied against a common cause and a common enemy, if that makes sense. Totally. I mean, I think especially with your history of having been in conflict situations and actually functioning in healthcare, I think that it resonates with what your experience and other people have described is that you're fighting against a common battle. In this case, it wasn't against bombs or, or threats in that way, but it was a different kind of threat. And that can really galvanize people together. But like you said, it can also is placed on someone's back and, and that can make extra stress, even just a little bit extra stress can sometimes make things fall apart for some people. And being compassionate like you are to say, this is probably situational, we can bend this. I think that's really important kind of a leadership pearl to not let the context and certain situations generalize across every other situation that will come after. And I have to confess, all through this, I continued my clinical work. I probably do more shifts now than I did two years ago. And it was the counterbalance it was actually the good counterbalance, that feeling of being in the trenches again, the feeling of camaraderie with every nurse, physician, RT, everybody working in the eMERGE team, our internists, this camaraderie that I think develops on the front lines was a counterbalance to the stress of meetings and plannings and the constant changing processes and the constant things you have to react to 24-7. Yeah, and that definitely agrees with me in terms of what I'm seeing in a lot of our leaders. You know, everyone's had to roll up their sleeves, be a little bit more present. I think mean, we're all chipping in a little bit more as all. Well. And I think that that gives you a sense of camaraderie with other people that you might have felt they're was a distance previously, right? So I think that that's really important. And again, another leadership role to think about is how do we take that back? How do we make sure we always have boots on the ground and ear to the ground when we are leading? Because sometimes you can have that gap that forms between your leadership position and your understanding of things and what it actually feels like and is like in the front lines and on the shop floor, right? So I do think that having that touch point really is important to have that touchstone, I guess. You're absolutely right. And, and as we hopefully come to some sort of recovery over the next year or two, I think one of the biggest part of our recovery that we cannot 
not forget is rebuilding our human resources, rebuilding all of the people who walked through the past two years and really shed sweat and tears and, you know, went through really, really dark times. I think we need to make sure that the batteries are recharged, the the soul is replenished. I don't know yet how we're going to do this, but as we come to a recovery, we're all going to start thinking about wait times and the backlogs and canceled surgeries and investigations that need to be done and new forms forms of technology that we need to deploy and what do we do with virtual care. But I think we need to take a minute and think about the people who did this, who delivered us to the other side of this adversity. And by doing so, they gave a piece of themselves. We owe it to them to make sure that they are made whole again. And I will be honest, some of them will, will go. I started thinking much more seriously about my semi-retirement during the pandemic, looking at the amount of pressure and looking at the next 10 or 15 years, hopefully have another 10 or 15 years left in my career. I started more seriously thinking about the details of how my unwinding is going to be. Although my friends keep telling me, just give yourself six months, you'll be bored again and looking for something else to do. But I'm starting to develop a new perspective. I think that has happened with a lot of people, right? Getting a new perspective on life, what you value. I think the pandemic has made us all reflect a little bit when we were with our nuclear families for the first time really tightly wound really kind of cloistered together i think you get a sense of what you value and moments that you've been able to generate sometimes we forget about that when we go back to the you know busy world where we're running from soccer practice to you know meeting to kid pick up here drop off there right and the flurry of all of the chaos sometimes you don't have time to think about what you value sometimes you don't have a time to think about what makes you whole and i think that the pandemic has given a lot of people that thought and i think that's why you've seen in other industries they call it the great resignation right in healthcare we're seeing some of that our great resignation probably comes from a different place in that it probably really comes from burnout and stress and continuous amounts of interaction so i think that that's all important for us to take into consideration but we need to think about how we can take that next step the other theme that I sort of reflected on the other day with a couple of my friends when we were talking about, especially the early days of the pandemic, is the concept of courage. I think the pandemic in many of us on the front line brought this forward. And it wasn't a very screaming loud, you know, courage, but real courage of conviction. We were talking about remembering the first months of the pandemic when we were not vaccinated, when we did not know what the virus behaved like, when we were, you know, saving our N95 masks at the end of the shift in a bag so that maybe they'll need to be re-sterilized and, and reused. There were so many unknowns. And we were talking how all of us at, at some level realized that, you know, there's a good chance I'm going to go to work today. I'm going to catch this virus and I don't know what's going to happen. And yet I am going to go because I need to be there. And that took so much courage from so many people. It, it was amazing to see. And those were the days when at 7 p.m. my neighbors, you know, bangs pots and pans for me and my colleagues. I found a video the other day of it. Just in contrast, about a month ago, everybody knows where I live in the community. It's a small community. Somebody had parked a car right across from my driveway with some anti-vax, anti-medical slogans written on the window for me to see. It was an amazing contrast. What I do didn't change. What we all do did not change. And yet it was amazing to see how perception and how society has changed the way they move around our role in trying to save lives and take care of them. But courage is definitely something that I have been reflecting on and seeing in my colleagues. And, and I'm so proud of that. Yeah. 
courage and then I think on the flip side vulnerability I think what we've seen is people more willing to be asking for help that they're not toughing it out I think that that's that's a different kind of courage to be vulnerable right and uh, absolutely so there's been more people willing to kind of say I'm struggling right now I need help I think you're actually seeing people use the call-ins when you have someone on call because it's not like a badge of honor anymore to go in when you have the sniffles in fact you can't you have to go get a COVID swab right so so I think that our systems have evolved and I think we're more willing to ask for that help that we probably always needed right if you're sicker as an eMERGE doc than your patients are with the sniffles even if you're recovering, you're just coughing a lot. You know, like I think right now we definitely don't want to do that. And we are calling in sick and we are doing the right thing. We have set up systems to allow for that to happen. And that's a very different experience than what I saw when I was a trainee and probably very different from what you saw in the time before where people didn't have those systems and we didn't actually rise up to help each other out. Right. True. All right. Well, this has been really exciting to touch base with you and connect with you. You know, these are kind of like real time thoughts, I guess. We'll probably air this around the time of just after the anniversary of COVID. So maybe other people will have their reflections as well. If you're interested, let us know. We can always add an audio clip of your reflections into what it is that we've been working on. And we'd love to hear thoughts from the crowd about their reflections about COVID as well. My pleasure. This was nice because it was completely unexpected. I didn't expect we're going to do this today. So this is the emotion of the moment. Very, you know, laid bare. Thank you very much, uh, Teresa. It's nice to see you again. All right. Well, thank you, Rafi. And we'll bring you back again for some other reflections sometime. Thanks. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Residence Corner at the Mac Emerge podcast. As always, I'm Ben. I'm here today with one of my close friends in co-residence in the FRCP Emerge program here at McMaster, Dr. Frank Battaglia. Frank is a wonderful guy, a great clinician, and he'd probably tell you a leader. And he's a guy who's always looking for leaders. So I'm going to be speaking with Frank today about leadership in medical education, in medical school, in residency, and all the lessons Frank has learned. Frank, welcome to Residence Corner. Thanks for having me, Dr. Forrestel. Always appreciate a chance to chat with you and talk a little bit about the things that are going on with our residents. Always formal, Frank, always formal. <laughs> now, you're an impressive guy. You've got an impressive CV particularly in leadership. Could you tell me what you've been involved with in medical school, in residency, with regards to leadership? So uh, I really appreciate the kind words there, Ben. I'm still, you know, I'm still getting my bearings together with what it means to be a leader in emergency medicine. But after seeing a number of clinicians that I get to work with and learn from every day, I'm trying to get a better understanding of what that means and where I'm going with this, but I'm someone who've always been interested in leadership, change at the institution and making things better for the people I get to work with or learn with every day. So honestly, a lot of this started when I was quite young. I think my first like leadership opportunity when I was in grade six, joining the student council as the media coordinator. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to kind of meet with both students and educators at that point. And that's really kind of set my I'm going to say career for leadership forward 
So from that point, I've been involved with student council every single consecutive year of my education, including now in second year residency. I've had the opportunity to be involved with a number of different pursuits to better represent our students and learners along the way, including like freshman undergraduate science society, physiology student society. I was then going through all of medical school on our student council, culminating with my presidency of the Ottawa Escalapian Society. Uh, and now as a resident, I'm involved with PARO, the Ontario Residents Association, working to better represent our residents. It's been an exciting time to be at the forefront of change and pushing for resident wellness and support, especially during this pandemic. And I can honestly say these experiences from PARO have really cemented my decision to say, hey, I really want to go forward with more of a formalized role in leadership in emergency medicine. Yeah, it's quite impressive. All the way from doing announcements in your elementary school to now being an advocate for residents in our hospitals across the province. I can't imagine all the lessons you've learned. In particular, over the last two years of the obvious COVID pandemic, resident leadership has been stressed and strained just as our cohorts of residents are continuing to face the ongoing struggles of being learners and yet simultaneously hospital employees in the greatest healthcare emergency, at least of the last 10 to 15 years. What are things that you've learned about leadership in the COVID pandemic in particular? So it's been interesting. The leadership necessary to pilot people through a COVID pandemic has been done by many of the clinician leaders that I get to see and work with on a daily basis off of like the side of their desk while they are currently working in, in understaffed emergency departments, pulling double shifts and putting in so many hours to keep the lights on. So where they are also the ones driving change in leadership to try and best protect our patients and trying to keep everyone else doing well. So I think that's really been a very interesting development for me to see that leadership is not always just a designated role where someone has, you know, the five days of the week to sit and go to board meetings and conversations and phone calls and emails, but instead is often replying to texts in between patient encounters or debating some of the residents' working conditions in between overnight shifts because that's when leadership happens, especially during our current staffing crisis in emergency medicine. And so honestly, one of the biggest takeaways I've had about leadership in this pandemic is that leadership happens right now as you're currently going through it. If you're looking for the perfect time to plan change and to pilot something and to move and to move the barometer on the measures we use to measure success in the emergency department, that time will never come because there's always something more pressing. There's always a fire to put out. And so learning to balance advocacy with hands-on clinical care is an important skill for us to kind of master throughout this pandemic. Yeah, it's always impressive seeing our division directors or our eMERGE chiefs, seeing nursing administrators working clinical shifts and then immediately after going to meetings. It's equally impressive seeing that among our resident body with yourself and multiple other members of our program being involved in the PARO Council. In terms of people who are similarly aspiring leaders, what sort of tips would you give them if they want to become more involved in leadership 
as well as why should someone want to become involved with leadership? You make it sound very exciting, but also like a lot of work. Uh, (laughs) So that's a great question. Leadership is something that is fluid and different, and there are many different kinds of leadership. Some people may already be involved with leadership and may not be recognizing it as so. And so the first thing I would tell you would be to sit down and to think of who am I? What am I passionate about? What kind of leader am I? What kind of leader do I want to be? When I first started off my more formal education and what it means to be a leader, I thought that a leader was someone who was visibly outspoken, who is direct, who comes with a lot of passion and energy and moves forward despite the challenges that are thrown at them. It took me four years of deep introspection and playing with that leadership style to realize that's not the leader that I want to be. I'm someone who prefers to take the opinions of others into account. And instead of being the pushing force, driving something forward, instead act as the boat, be the vessel to hold on to what it means of the dreams and the ideas of your team and to shepherd those ideas and those beliefs forward in a unified fashion. And so the first thing I would say would be to really reflect on who you are and who you want to be as a leader. From there, I would say test it out. No one gets to excel in their field, be a leader of a large institution without trying to be a leader locally first. So start small and start in ways that you know will challenge you to grow. Apply for that role on Paro. Join your medical student, student council. Be a leader in whatever space you're passionate about until you build up more confidence and experience. You don't have to be right off the bat. You don't have to know everything, but you have to start in order to grow. So I really encourage everyone here who's looking to grow in medical leadership or leadership in general, just to start with something. And lastly, as far as the logistics of how do I actually become a leader, I think some form of organization to ensure that you are a well-rounded individual with time for the things that are important for you is an important way to make sure that you can achieve these goals. I am someone who enjoys schedules and calendars and to-do lists, and that works well for me. I have other friends who are equally as passionate about leadership who do post-it notes on their bathroom mirror to help them guide forward. Find a system that works for you and make sure you schedule time for wellness, for exercise, for friends and family, for improving yourself mentally, for studying, for doing the different areas of your life that will help you become a better person globally. And that way you are a stronger leader going forward is balanced in the approach they take to development. Frank, those are some really nice insights into both learning in general and how to be a capital L and small L leader as well. We know in our clinical settings that we have to take over leadership in in resuscitations, in times when our emergency departments are chaotic. And that does not necessarily mean every eMERGE resident or every eMERGE staff or medical student needs to be the capital L leader of their local area or 
provincially or nationally, but we do have to put ourselves out there so that we become stronger leaders and provide voices for those who might not have them. I really appreciate your leadership style in the way that you support others. And it is not your agenda, but rather the agenda of those that you work with, that you only seek to promote and make better. You're there to enable others and not to force your own ideas upon them. I think that's something a lot of us can look forward to, particularly in the clinical setting when our team members may have suggestions. And remember, Emerge is a team game. Medicine is a team game. And teams need leaders. So, Frank, thank you so much for your insights. And I look forward to seeing you again soon in the Trauma Bay. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!